0: is an organizational psychologist, and the best-selling author of Willpower Doesn't Work. And his brand new book, Personality Isn't Permanent. From 2015 to 2018, he was the number one writer on the platform Medium. During that time, he grew his email list from zero to 400,000 without paid advertising. Ben's blogs are read by millions monthly. He's also an accomplished public speaker and has numerous TED Talks. All right, Benjamin, thanks for coming on the show. Happy to be with you. So, I mean, I looked at your book and uh, it had something very interesting. You said... uh, Your wife almost didn't marry you because of a personality test. What's that about?
1: So when I was in my undergraduate, there was a very popular personality test where I was going to school and where I know it's kind of a popular personality test in a lot of places. It's called the color code. Mm. And this test categorizes people one of four different ways. And anyways, Lauren's family, my wife's family, they really took this test seriously (laughs) The thing that's important to know is my wife came from a, she'd been married before me. She'd been married and she was in a very abusive marriage. And I was the first person that she had dated after that marriage. So I'll kind of explain how the color code works. Basically, it breaks people up into one of four different categories. Either you're a red, which is like a type A, go, go, go. You're a blue, which is kind of very relationship based. You're a white, which is kind of passive and kind of just like a thoughtful person. And then you're you're yellow. You're a total life of the party. You go, you know, you're essentially like a social butterfly extrovert. So that's kind of how the test breaks people up. And Lauren's family kind of really likes this test. So most of their family categorized themselves as reds, type A. Lauren is a red type A. And she had been in a marriage with a red type A. Mm. And that marriage was very abusive and destructive to the point where Lauren kind of lost herself. She became a shell of who she was. And it was a very dominating relationship. And so it was such a painful, traumatic relationship. She ended up spending about a year traveling the world, kind of rediscovering or recreating herself. And then she ended up serving a church mission, actually. And so I was the first person that was the first person to really date her. And when her parents found out that I was a white, according to the test, they were like, they were like very concerned because they said, Lauren, we know what you're up to. Like, you're worried about it because in the last marriage you were in or in the last relationship, you got heavily dominated by like a really controlling guy. And now you're dating a white guy because like a white, Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. you're dating a white because you don't want to be controlled again. And because he's white and he's passive, you can control him. And so they were just saying, this is, you're kind of obviously compensating for the last situation. We think you should probably not date a white just because you're afraid of being with someone serious you need to still marry like a real man you you shouldn't marry a white and so like they were very much like you probably shouldn't marry this guy you know and my wife was thinking the same thing she's like I don't know if I want to be with someone who can't make decisions and stuff like that because that's kind of how whites are categorized and so yeah I mean truth be told we almost didn't get married because I was considered a white on that color code test and kind of hilarious now if you think about it but that's that's really the situation like that was that was a real thing on the table
0: Yeah. I mean, how'd you overcome that?
1: She's the one who had to overcome it. Mm. I mean, she's the one who had to make the decision. Because, as for myself, I didn't see myself as a white. Like, I didn't really, I had come from a crazy background, had a crazy, you know, crazy amount of trauma that I'd grown up with. And I'd made some big decisions. I had actually served a church mission myself, gotten into a really good college, was just advancing boldly towards my goals, you know, and I had a big dreams, big future. So, like, I didn't really see myself as a white even though I'm the one who took the test. And every time you take a personality test, you're the one who gives yourself the score. A lot of aspects of that personality profile I liked because it was about like thoughtfulness and like meditation and stuff. And so I was like, yeah, those are the things that I resonated with. And so I thought they were interesting, but I didn't I didn't think that those things limited me. So I, I thought it was interesting and I was very focused on my own future and I'd overcome a lot of things from the past. And so I, I didn't view myself in such a narrow, confined way. But it was ultimately her decision. She had to kind of make the leap of faith if she wanted to go with something like that. And I'm probably the closest, to hilariously, my wife's the middle child of five. And I think out of all the in-laws, because all of her sister, siblings are married, I think out of all the in-laws, I'm the one that's the closest with her parents, which is kind of funny. Because <laughs> like I, I think we're in a great relationship. And I think it's kind of funny that they were worried about who I am. You know what I mean? Because I'm that's just not who I, that's not who I am today. If I took the test today, I wouldn't get the same score. But in any case, you just can't really see a full person by one of those tests.
0: Yeah. So, so I thought the, it was pretty funny. Yeah, for sure. I mean, your your book personality is impermanent. As a business, our business community takes a, a lot of these personality tests quite seriously. What, what are the uh, sort of uh, challenges of these tests?
1: Oh, wow. Well, <laughs> let's just, let's just put it this way. And disk is a very popular one. Disk, Enneagram, Myers, Briggs. These tests are interesting and I think that people really enjoy them. But they first off, they're not really valid. They're not necessarily studying what they say they're studying. They're not reliable mm. because you can get different scores in different situations and in different environments and different times. And so they're they're essentially pseudoscience. Uh, they're not really good science. But I was actually recently talking to someone who's who was big on the disk profile. He loved it and he had done a lot of trainings on it. And he said that it was interesting because every time he'd be working with a group and they'd take the tests and I don't really know everything about these things, but apparently like the D's are like the leaders. And again, I don't really know, but he said that whenever he would take the test or give a group the tests and then they'd start to talk about it, all the, the tests kind of brought out the characteristics in the people. So like people who scored a D, they started really acting like D's and kind of being macho and overbearing and stuff. And like everyone else kind of scattered to the corner. And he just said it was interesting because the test is really what creates the attributes. And so he, he had been in love with these profiles, but when he read my book, he kind of realized the problems. I'll kind of highlight some of the problems. One is, um, from a psychological perspective, context is really important. You can't really understand something without understanding the context. And these tests fundamentally ignore context. Like you get a score, for example, I'm a white as an example. And the assumption is that I'm always a white in every situation. So there's a huge focus on content and a huge ignorance of context. And in different contexts, you're gonna show up different ways. I'm not always gonna reflect attributes of a white. In some situations, I might, and in some situations I might be focused on relationships, or in some situations I might be driving. Like people are far more dynamic than that. But also, Ellen Langer, who's been studying mindfulness at Harvard for the past 40 years, has spent a lot of time studying what leads people to being mindless. And when you're mindless, you're essentially not aware of what's going on. You're not you're not being mindful and you're not making good decisions, you're not noticing change, you're not being adaptable. And one of the biggest ways that people become mindless is if they overly adopt a label. Hmm. If you define yourself as depressed, as an example, you think you're always depressed. You see yourself through the lens of a label, but what you don't realize is that you're actually acting from a non-depressed perspective many times throughout a day, but you don't pay attention to those because you're only focused on the label. Like in selective attention, it's kind of like when you buy a car, when you buy a car, you see that car everywhere, <laughs> you know, have you had that experience?
0: Yeah. Yeah, for sure.
1: Yeah. But you don't see all the other cars. So like that's what a label does is you see you see the label, but you don't notice all the times when the label is not true, which are actually very often. And another big problem is, is that once you've assumed a label, you've made it such a big part of your identity that you now defend it and you now try to confirm it. You try to confirm the label and set goals to confirm it, to prove to yourself and everyone else that you're this person, you're this introvert, or you're this person. And so it can really stunt your growth. It can stunt you from being someone potentially who you'd want to be, or it would stunt you from having the imagination or the flexibility of being someone different. Usually, if you've had a huge label that you've defined yourself as, you're very non-flexible outside of that label. Mm. So if you see yourself as an introvert, you then have kind of a fixed mindset about anything that's outside of that. You don't see yourself in different ways. And so it leads you to being very inflexible about who you can be.
0: Interesting. So flexibility is important. Now, what are the sort of I guess, limits of flexibility? I mean, you, you talked about introvertness, extrovertness. Obviously, there's some level of temperament involved. What's the level of flexibility available to an individual? I think flexibility
1: is developed. Some people probably have it more than others in the beginning, but you develop flexibility by becoming increasingly confident the more confident you become and the better you can handle uncertainty in new situations. So essentially it's a good way of looking a simplistic, but a good way of looking at personalities is that it's your comfort zone. It's what you're comfortable doing. It's what's safe. Anything outside of what's typical for you, your habits and things like that is going to deal with, you're going to deal with a little bit of uncertainty. You're going to be doing things that are outside your comfort zone. And when you're outside your comfort zone, it usually takes courage or you're doing something new there. You can't fully predict the outcomes. And so it takes flexibility to to try new things, to deal with ambiguity, uncertainty, complexity. But the more you handle it, the more flexible you can become. As an example, my daughters who are 16 months old, they're twin girls, 16 months old. We, Before the whole COVID thing, we were having them do swimming lessons because we have a swimming pool down here in Florida. And part of teaching little girls or babies how to swim, infants who can't even talk, is you put them in the water and they've got to figure out how to get on their back and swim. And it's a terrible experience for them. Like. They don't really love doing it, but over time they get good at it. They become, and so you can become more adaptive and more flexible by being in situations like if if you're so emotionally rigid that you can't handle novelty and newness and difficulty, then your limits, then your options are incredibly limited. Is all you're going to do is what what feels safe or what feels comfortable? And obviously, from like an evolutionary perspective, Charles Darwin said it's not the strongest or the smartest that survives or succeeds it's the ones that are most adaptable to change we're in a world of a lot of change and if you can't handle novelty or newness if you're not flexible you're not gonna be able to learn like flexibility is part of learning and so yeah i think it's incredibly important and we can all become more flexible and confident i mean confidence and flexibility are kind of similar if you're confident you'll put yourself in situations that you've never done stuff before you'll, you'll try things that might not work you won't over to failures along the way you won't get so upset, you know, you'll, you'll emotionally regulate along the way and you'll be able to handle your emotions.
0: Yeah. So you mentioned about flexibility and confidence. Like are there things that you recommend to people on building that up? Like any drills or best practices that sort of come out regularly for you?
1: I think that the best way to do it, honestly, is to define goals and make progress towards goals. Like, Goals that are above your current capabilities. There's a quote from Dan Sullivan, who is the founder of Strategic Coach, actually right up there in Canada. And uh, he said, confidence is built by making progress towards goals above your current capabilities. That's kind of how it works is you you have to move in a goal-directed direction. I mean, I think other things you could do is honestly just try things you've never done. You could learn a new language, develop new hobbies, be around new people. I mean, a lot of it, you can build flexibility by just trying new things and, you know, stuff that's outside your current persona. But I think that the best way to do it is by pursuing a goal, pursuing a purpose, and having that purpose kind of change you and transform you. Just as an example, my wife and I, when we were first-year graduate students, we'd never been parents before, but we took on the challenge, you could say, of, you know, going from zero to three, having fo- three foster kids from a very tough environment. and there's a good quote from William Durant. He's the famous historian. He said that the ability of the average person could be doubled if the situation demanded it. Mm. And so, I mean, if you put yourself in a situation where you've required to do things that are, I call it a forcing function, you're forced or required to do things that you wouldn't typically do. Like I wouldn't typically, when we became parents of these three kids out of the blue, was a decision we made, we chose to do that. But we had to learn all sorts of stuff that were not necessarily easy. We had to learn how to like be patient and deal with their behavioral issues and put their needs above our own and like clean, just, I don't know, we, you, you had to learn how to be flexible because if you weren't, you'd freak out at the kids and that would create more problems. And so it's good to put yourself in situations where you've got to learn skills and develop attributes where you can. And so, so I would say there's, there's lots of different ways you can do it. But I think at the end of the day, it's pursuing things that are meaningful that require that you become a better version of yourself in order to do it.
0: So I know that uh, you've built up quite a following on uh, Medium, and you grew out, I think, from zero to 400,000 in a short period of time. Was that a goal, or that just happened? Like, was there a strategy there? Of course there was a strategy.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that just as an example, there's a lot of... So So Malcolm Gladwell talks about the 10,000-hour rule, right? Mm-hmm. And that's not a good rule. Uh, (laughs) It's it's actually not a real rule because people can do things for 10,000 hours and not get any better. People can write a thousand blog posts and still be amateurs. So it's not about doing something repetitiously. That's not good learning. Deliberate practice is really where the idea came from. And deliberate practice requires that you have a future self in mind. Deliberate practice is essentially transformational learning where you're, you're working towards a goal. And so I very much had a goal. My goal was to become a professional writer. I wanted to get a six-figure book deal with one of the big major New York publishers. And in order to do that, I I got the information and I asked tons of authors and agents and stuff. I'm like, how do you get a six-figure book contract? And they all said, you're gonna probably have to get over 100,000 emails, email subscribers. And so that was my goal. Your goal always shapes the process. And so for me, I wasn't blogging the blog. I was blogging to get 100,000 emails so that I could get my book deal and do what I wanted to do. And obviously I enjoyed blogging. I didn't hate the process. I enjoyed it. But I was purposeful about the process. I was deliberate in my practice. And so if you're not getting the results you want, you need to adjust the process. You got to increase your commitment to the process and your courage. And so, yeah, I was very deliberate and I'm deliberate right now in what I'm doing. You know, what got you here won't get you there. I don't write on Medium very much anymore now because it's not that relevant to my goals. (laughs) Like it got me here, but the goals now have shifted. My future self has shifted. And so you've got to, A lot of people, they get stuck in a persona and stuck in an identity where they keep doing what they did before because it used to work. But you shouldn't obsess with a process. Instead, you should really get committed to a future
0: and then determine the right process for getting there. Fair enough. You talked about overcoming a lot of challenges when you were young. Can you tell me about some of those?
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah, when I was 11 years old, my parents got divorced. And it was
1: very painful. Led my father to becoming an extreme drug addict, to be honest with you. He was just in a deep depression and I didn't really get it when I was 11 years old and 12, 13, 14 during this episode, I just didn't, I couldn't understand where he was at. And I, I was too young to understand. And we just didn't have great conversations back then, but he, he was in a deep state where he was doing pretty much terrible drugs. His home became a bad environment. And I was pretty much, you know, I was the oldest of three boys and it was really rough. My mom was trying to run a a small business with her sister. And so we just had very little stability and You know, I just, you know, as a young kid, you just don't really know how to handle that. You're kind of just in a stress state. I don't know. I still don't know to this day how I ended up graduating from high school. But I did. Somehow I did. And after high school, I ended up just playing video games all day, living at my cousin's house, playing World of Warcraft, not holding a job, not having any purpose in my life. I've dropped out of college. You know, I went to community college for like a week. I took one class and just dropped it because I couldn't do it. Had no learning skills or ability. What happened though was I ended up serving a church mission. That's the big thing for me that changed my life. I was really just not happy with my life. And so I decided I need to get out and just felt like a church mission would be a great opportunity to get out of that situation and learn new things and hopefully restart my life. And that's really the thing that changed everything for me was just being in a new situation, having a new role, letting go of the past, being around new people, doing community service, reading tons of books, journaling, getting support from leaders. I mean, I went through so much change during that experience that I came back a totally different person. That's what led me to wanting to write and that's what led me to studying psychology.
0: So was was it just was it one moment or did it kind of kind of develop over time?
1: Both. It was definitely both. I mean, I made the decision to leave, that's a that's a moment, but the transformation happens over time. But I mean, big decisions often happen in moments, and so it's both. But I mean, it's yeah, I mean, I'm still changing. I'm not the same person I was on that mission. I'm not the same person as I was three or four years ago, and I'm guessing that you're not the same person you were three or four years ago, and so it is a development, but also there are pivotal moments, and so it's both and And I think that pivotal moments then lead to developmental processes yeah,
0: I mean, does this have to come from inside uh yourself, or let's say someone else is struggling with it. Is there things that you can do to help them along that path?
1: You have to, yeah. Change doesn't always happen from the inside out. Sometimes it happens from the outside in. Sometimes by changing environments, you've got, you can then go through the change. And so, yeah, I would say people who are struggling need help. And if you're struggling, you need help. And we all need help. None of us are above that. And one of the big reasons people get trapped in their persona or they get stuck in the past is because of traumatic experiences. And traumas are really any negative event that kind of keeps you stuck and limits your potential. And so, yeah, in order to release that, you usually need to not only journal about it and reflect on it and start to reframe it and think about the positives or the goods that have come out of it and start to think about moving back towards your future. But usually you need supportive people around you as well that you can express your negative emotions to and express your fears, your anxieties, or your your pains. I mean, you need to share what you've dealt with so that then you can start to process it and, and rethink it and get moving back towards the future. So yeah, you need... We all need help. I mean, even if you're pursuing big goals, you need support. You need mentors, coaches, you need friends. We all need encouragement to break past the plateaus.
0: Who are your mentors?
1: I've got a lot, man. I've got (laughs) a ton of them. Got Dan Sullivan is a good friend. I've got a friend named Wayne. My mom's a mentor of mine. Got my wife, who's a huge support in-laws. I mean, I've got tons of mentors, Tucker Max. I mean, I've got tons of people who support me and I need them all. You know, the more, the bigger your goals, the more support you need emotionally and practically speaking. What are your future goals? Yeah. So my, my, my future self is, uh, and you really do want to start with your future self, that person you want to be first. And then you, then you set some goals to become that future self. But I definitely want to be someone Like the next stage of my life, which is in about two or three years from now, is I'm going to still be writing books like this. I'll be still writing these things. But I'm going to walk away from a lot of the entrepreneurial pursuits I'm doing. A lot of the collaborations, I'm going to be spending a lot more time on more spiritual pursuits. Like I really loved the missionary work that I did when I was 10 years ago. And I want to get back to that, but more in a leadership capacity. So my goal is actually to sell 10 million copies of this book in the next few years. 10 million copies, because that would put me in a financial situation where I could essentially retire... I'm going to keep writing books. I'm never going to retire, but I want to be in a position financially for myself, for my family, that I can essentially spend all my time on more of that spiritual missionary style stuff. I'll still keep writing books, but I'm going to make a big pivot in about two or three years. So in order to get there, my goal is to sell 10 million copies of this
0: book. That's great. Now, is there anything that I didn't ask you, but uh, should have? Not at all. You're an amazing guy. I've just been happy to be with you. Thank you so much, Benjamin. And uh, I definitely learned a lot. Thanks, buddy. I want to thank everyone for listening to Specify today. Also want to thank the listeners who are working hard each day to change the world to make it a better place. If you know anyone, anyone that would benefit from this episode, please pass it along. And finally, make sure you subscribe to hear upcoming episodes. Talk to you soon.